G'day, I'm Will Anderson. Welcome to Willosophy. Uh, plugs up the front. You know how this works. My new show uh, is called Will Informed, and it's on uh, in Hobart, March the 8th, and then at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. That is on sale, selling the fastest of any of my shows ever, which is brilliant. So I would love if that could continue. Uh, my Today's guest on the podcast, just one of my favourite people in the world. Uh, super, super funny. She has a Netflix special that you'd have to watch. She's going to be on a new tour uh, around the country. We're going to talk about that. But what we didn't really mention was her kids' book, which is called George and the Great Bum Stampede. And uh, so I wanted to give that a proper plug up the front. So if you have kids and you want a book for your kids, George and the Great Bum Stampede is the name of the book. Uh, Kel Wilson is the guest on the podcast today and she's the best and you're going to love this. And look, you know, all I would say is stay until the end because it gets a little emotional at the end. Hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. Uh, I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and I feel very uh, professional today because we're in an actual radio studio. have done one of these in a radio studio before, but last time I did it in a radio studio, um, it was just with my podcast equipment that I just was using in a radio studio. But today we're in a radio studio using actual radio studio equipment. So this may well be the best episode of this podcast you have ever heard. And it probably is going to be because of our guest today. And this is how the podcast starts. Guest, who are you? I am Kel Wilson. I am a stand-up comedian. I am a writer and I am a kids book author. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, th- all that is very exciting. Is writer and kids book also separate things? Yeah, because you know, I've written columns and stuff yeah. like that before and written for TV shows. But having a published book is different. Uh, I feel like I'm the only comedian who doesn't have a kid's book at the moment. Come on. I mean, well, I don't have a kid either. Is that creepy if I start coming out with kids' books and I don't have a kid? Okay, so your niche is going to be writing books for people's pets. So you are going to be like the pet author. So you're going to be doing books for people that's like, um, and then Chili said, so you're going to be doing, you're going to be communicating directly with the pet, and the people that don't have children will be like, I fucking love Will Anderson. He's just, that's something for us. Well, you know what it is too, because it's a good target market because you're selling a kid's book, right? Yeah. Problem with that is that people are spending, you know, money on their kids as well, you know, so they don't have as much disposable income. Whereas I'm pitching to rich idiots who want to pamper their dog or cat by reading them a book specifically designed to them. Exactly. And they'll already be at the dog cafe. They will have bought the dog biscuits (laughs) and the dogachino and you're laughing. (laughs) Uh, Cal, the way uh, this podcast works is I ask people if they have a philosophy towards something a life philosophy of some kind, and then we just sort of chat. So let's start there, and then we'll just chat about all sorts of nonsense. All right. So my philosophy is, if you can make something better for someone, why wouldn't you? Okay, I like that. That's that's very good already. So where does that come from? Uh, I, How long do you reckon you've had that philosophy for? Um, I don't know, but I think like it kind of ties in with the way I feel about doing comedy, which is I want everyone to walk out feeling better than they did when they walked in. Like I want everyone to leave feeling happy as well as that they've laughed, you know, like, so, and I reckon maybe it comes from being a people pleaser all my life. Maybe that's part of it, but also I've got a really kind mum. And I think as I get older, I appreciate that more in her and I get a real kick out of being able to do stuff for people and making things a bit better for other people. Okay. So I love the idea of the kind mum for a start. So let's start there because 
I, I think that I have a kind mum as well. Mm. If I was going to, you know, come up with a word that summed up my mum and it immediately came to mind, kind yeah, would yeah. be certainly yeah. in the mix of words uh, that I would choose. And I think that it's an amazing gift to give a child to be a kind mum, yeah, yeah. you know, even though my mum and I are very different in a lot of different ways and certainly her life experience is very different to the life experience that I have. Her kindness is something that I've tried to take with me into those various different situations without even ever, ever consciously knowing yeah. it. Like it took me a long time. It probably took me until I was in my mid thirties, forties to realize that that was where it came from and why yeah. I was striving to bring that kindness to those situations and why in situations where I wasn't being kind, it felt it so horrible. It feels horrible, horrible, doesn't it? It feels yeah. horrible. Yeah. Uh, I, I would often look jealously at other people who could be, you know, cruel so casually. I was like, I, I could be imagine, cruel imagine. and I have, but you know, just like, they seem to be like yeah. fine with being cruel. Whereas I would be cruel and then I would feel terrible oh, about awful, it awful. for and the rest of my it. life. Yeah. Think about it at night at like four in the morning and go, oh, I said terrible things to those girls at high school. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> I literally have that flashback quite a lot. <laughs> as I, I said terrible things to those girls at high school. So where did that kindness manifest itself for you. Tell me a bit about what it was like growing up for you. Where, I mean, in New Zealand, obviously. Yes, yeah, in Christchurch. So what was that like? Tell me what young life for you was like. Uh, it, wow, what was it like? It was, um, I always think very flat, like Christchurch is like a, it's on the plains. Uh, it's quite a conservative place. Like, and it's really different now. It's, it's weird talking about Christchurch because Christchurch now is so altered post-earthquake to the Christchurch that I grew up in. So it's an entirely different city now. Like Christchurch, for me, was a very safe, stable, boring sort of place. We'd go, we had two places that we went on holiday. It was Akaroa or Omaru. And then, and like it was a very, I, I feel like I had quite a routine childhood. Um, and I just was always attracted to performance. Like that was always something... Like I can still remember laughing at something on TV for the first time and it was at a Benny Hill joke, which is... Do you remember what the joke was? It was a guy riding a horse, a highwayman riding away on a horse and he pulled a string and the horse's tail came up and a gun came out of its ass and it shot the people who were following him. And I thought that was gold. I mean, some some humour doesn't age very well, but that I, one I think yeah. I think I would still enjoy that yeah, if I saw yeah, that. Yeah, just the unexpected nature of the horse's tail going up and a bang. It's like, brilliant. Mm. So you, laughter was important. Were your parent yeah. like, was your family situation one that where laughter was celebrated? Yeah. So my, actually my family, my, on my dad's side, my, I, I feel like I get warmth from my mum's side, like my, um, and, and wit from my dad's side. Like, so my dad's family are all great talkers. Like, and I, I used to do a joke about it that we had, we didn't have uh, conversations. We'd have tag team monologue. So <laughs> everyone just talks until they run out of breath and then the next person jumps in. Like, so, so. Big family of storytellers. Um, dad loves a pun, like I love wordplay from my dad, all that kind of thing. And so, family gatherings were always lots of laughter and, um, yeah, just great stories that you would hear over and over again, kind of thing. And I think I get that love of talking for a long time, but I've contained it by doing it on stage when people want that to happen. 
Yeah, I've got to say that, I mean, the, the monologue to monologue way of conversing would have got you used to some comedy green rooms. Yeah. Because quite a lot of the time in a comedy green room, particularly early on, people are only listening to you to know when you stop so yes, they can so start talking. they can tell talking. you their story. Yeah. And my thing that I always used to think was um, I'd meet a new comedian from overseas or something and I'd be like, well, they're, they're torn because I'm a woman, so they don't know whether they should hit on me or tell me how great they are. <laughs> like, like do, which do they start with? Do they hit on me to get that out of the way or do they tell me about their amazing career? Or what do we, can we combine? On the two, like, <laughs> um, so dad, dad's family is the wit side, yeah, mum's family is the warmth side. Yeah, yeah, it's the... a good combination yeah, to be a yeah. performer. So, how early on did you make that transition in your head from going, I enjoy watching performance, to thinking maybe performance is something that I would enjoy doing myself? I reckon, uh, I was quite young, I was at primary school. I remember writing a play, like, we wrote a play. And we did it at the end of the year. My first performance role was um, as the Virgin Mary uh, in the Nativity play in my first year at school. And I rode another child as a donkey. That's all I remember about that. (laughs) Um, You've got the starring role in that. uh, Absolutely. And the other kid has got the worst role in that. Yeah. I mean, I was a small child, so it wasn't like... I'm imagining they chose a heftier child in the class. But. I mean, again, poor hefty child. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're some poor hefty child. You've gone off to primary school and now you have to play the donkey in the yeah. nativity. Yeah. Don't get any lines. You're just going to be hefty. Yeah. But poor hefty child is a great <laughs> name to have in the credits or something. <laughs> um, so I, re- I remember loving showing off, like being a show off at home. And I remember doing an improvised play with my older brother uh, where the characters were polystyrene cups that I had drawn faces on and we were behind the table. And so I'd be like, and now you say this. And then he'd say whatever boring thing I had him say. And then I'd say something. It was like an entirely improvised play that must have felt like it went for hours. But I remember just loving that that feeling of being in control of the attention that's paid to you. Uh, so at primary school, what other areas of interest did you have? Like tell me what – so you're going to primary school in Christchurch? yep. yep. And is it a big school? Uh, no, probably not by Australian standards. Quite a small school. Yeah, a small school. Like I go back now because my nephews have been through that same primary school and it's tiny and the hall feels like a doll's house. You know, it is it is a small school, but at the time it felt plenty big enough. Uh, so was your school experience a fun one? Were you like a kid that easily fit in with other people? Um, were you someone who like, you know, felt you know, well-liked at primary school? Was primary school a fun experience for you? I think I got bored by it. Like, I think, like, talking about it with my mum later, like, I'd, I'd say I was felt sick a lot and didn't want to go to school, but I think it was just because it wasn't, it wasn't challenging maybe. And also, like, as much as I love performing, I'm quite shy, and I was very shy, I think, as a child. And so I wasn't one of those people that could walk up to a group of kids and be like, hey, I'm here, kind of thing. So it took me a while, I think, to feel comfortable with, other kids and there were like I, I remember one or two times there was a guy called Robert who was a large hefty child and he um <laughs> like I remember him pushing me into the one the road. from the play I don't know I yeah. mean like it would be perfect if it was right. but I think it was a different kid but he was obviously trying to cut quite a troubled kid looking back but I remember him pushing me on the road and you know ripping my brown tights and crying and but then not telling anyone about it you know like the the things that happen as a kid that it doesn't occur to you to say to anyone else you know like we had a we had a teacher at primary school who would like feel the girls' backs to see if any of them were old enough to wear bras yet. And we just were like, oh, we just keep out of his way. But it never occurred to us to say anything about it. You know, like, like as an adult, I go, we should have probably let someone know that was happening. Because if that was happening, who knows what else was happening? 
but as a kid, I think you just you just think that you have to deal with it. So, I mean, you're a parent. Yeah. Uh, you know, do you, how do you like process that when you remember what it was like for you at like that primary school age, when you have children, you know, who, you know, pr- primary school and how do you encourage then pass on what you've learned or yeah, your yeah. experience of that, you know, to your children with how to deal with those sort of situations? The thing that I'm really conscious of with my son is that, I am always saying to him, you know that you can tell us anything and we are always on your side. Mm. Like, you know that, like whatever you have to tell us or whatever you have to tell me, I'll always be on your side. Cause I'm, I'm, you know, he goes to a great little school and, but I'm conscious of stuff like that. Cause I, you know, I look back and he's quite like me, like he's a big thinker. Like I can see that overthinking gene in him already that my whole family has of like, uh, you you know, anxiety. It's basically anxiety. And I can see that, that he could go down that path as well. Um, so I'm kind of trying to head stuff off at the pass, knowing what I was like as a kid. It's an interesting one, isn't it though? Because I think there is so much, you know, shame in like sometimes with your parents and it's so weird because your parents, of course, you know, love you more than anybody else and they want to know what's going on and they, Mm. they would hate the idea that you're being, you know, pushed onto the road, you know, by some hefty boy and that you're keeping it to yourself, you know, but that you feel that you can't tell them for whatever reason. So when you say to your son, uh, you know, you can tell us anything, you know, do you feel like he believes that is true? I think so. And I think also um, I pick my time with it. Like our time to have a conversation is when he's gone to bed and he's also delaying having the lights turned out kind of thing like that. But we'll kind of talk about the day and talk about stuff and – that's when often we have really good conversations about things because something will occur to him and then we'll just keep talking about stuff. How do you deal with answering questions from your kid that you may not know the answer to? I say, I don't know. Let's go and Google it. Like, so if, if it's a factual thing, I'll go, I'm not really sure. This is what I think, but we can Google it when we get home. But if it's something like, you know, he asked me how babies were made and I was surprised. You'd be like, I don't know. Yeah, let's go Google know. it. Let's Google it. It um, happened. I hear they have some films. Um, <laughs> so I told him the first time, and then he forgot it. Like, because the thing that I've discovered mm. is that you can have a conversation with your kid, and you go, "Well, that's that sorted out." And then, like six months later, they'll come back, and they've probably forgotten what you said. Kind of. So I had a conversation with him. He said, "How how do people have babies?" And so I was flustered. Like I was like, "Oh shit, I have." I thought I had more time to do this, but it's here. And so I started off and I was really disappointed. It was like, oh, you know, the dad's got some ingredients and the mum's got some ingredients. And I was like, it's not a cake. We're not making a cake. And so I had a conversation. So I did it quite sort of anatomically correctly for like, this is a traditional way of making babies. Um, So that, you know, involving a man and a woman, and this is a traditional way of doing it. And I talked about penises, vaginas, and ovary and sperm and things like that. And at the end of it, he went, well, that sounds disgusting. I hope they've found a better way to do it by the time I've grown up. (laughs) So, which is now a fantastic piece of stand-up. So he's, you know, he's earning his keep. But... Like sometimes, yeah, and we, we you're like comedy festivals coming up. What yep. else do you need yes, to know about? Yes, what, what's troubling you, my darling? You're fine if I record our yeah. nighttime conversations, <laughs> right? Um, well, half of my Netflix special is a story about Digby being a ghost, which is he's got such a great imagination, and that's the real joy for me of being a parent is watching this person blossom into who they are, and just that their mind goes to places that you've never expected it to go, or that 
you'll have conversations that are quite tricky or that are just so gorgeous that it's really hard to not laugh at them because they're so innocent and hilarious. Like I've, since I've had Digby, I've realized how much my mum must have laughed over my head as she was hugging me as I was crying about something stupid. Like, you know, like we, we took him to a museum once and he got scared by a horse talking. Like it was like a talking model and it was a really awful situation because he was scared of it. I was like, no, no, we'll pat the horse's nose. It'll be fine. And I held him up to pat the horse and then it started talking and he just lost his shit, like completely freaked out. And it was hilarious. Like I was so, I was like, oh no, poor Digby's just had this terrible scarring experience. It was dreadful, but also so funny. Like just the timing was impeccable. Like as a piece of comedy theater, it was perfect. And that thing of being simultaneously feeling sympathy and love for the small child, but also going, oh my God, that was hilarious. How do you, you, you mentioned the Netflix special and you mentioned the material in the next mm. Netflix special. What, what is your conversation with yourself about what's appropriate to use that, in, you know, that involves, yeah, yeah. you know, someone who hasn't signed up yeah, necessarily for being given in his the consent, show. Yeah. Right? So the, the stories that I tell about him, he's always the hero. Mm. So there's never, I mean, the stories that I will tell you off air about him, um, which I would never do on air because he's vulnerable in those stories. But, you know, things like the, I hope they've found a better way to do it by the time I've grown up. Like, he's got a great line. Like, yeah. he's had a great line in it. And the story that I tell in the Netflix special is just gorgeous. He used, he used to pretend to be a ghost. And um, I just watched the show. Uh, no, he, he, it's um, available on Netflix. Yeah. It's all around the world, Netflix. <laughs> um, so he used to pretend to be a ghost and what I loved about talking to the ghost was that he had an answer for everything. And so he told me that his name was Jordan Doorbell and that he'd invented the doorbell and <laughs> he's got cousins, Tony and Ethan Doorbell that live down the road. But when he died, he didn't give them any money because they were assholes and he's left all his money to RSPCA and all like just beautiful. Yeah. But the, the, the um, convention was that I had to pretend I couldn't see the ghost and, or wonder where Digby had gone kind of thing. And so the ghost was around for quite a while. And then um, we had a conversation one day, as Digby, um, about the tooth fairy. And he wanted to know if the tooth fairy was real. And I said, "If you, do, you want, do you want the truth? He said, yes. And so I said, it doesn't exist. And he goes, oh, well, that means that Santa and the Easter Bunny aren't real either. Ooh, and I was like, oh, that's smart. shit. Like, like, I, yeah. He got you. Because he, he, totally he, he thought he'd give, he thought you'd, you'd give you the, super, like the yeah. tooth fairy? Yeah. If you'd no, gone in hard on Santa, you might have held on to it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. But, but he gone, got the whole cast. Like, yeah. just does not believe in the whole cast. And so Chris and I, my husband and I had a massive fight about it because he was really upset that I had kind of destroyed Christmas. And my thing was he asked for the truth and I told him the truth and then he worked it out for himself. And so we had a big, like probably the worst argument we've ever had in 15 years of being together about what I should have done in that moment. And I was adamant that I wasn't going to lie to him. Um, what age is he when this is happening? Eight. He's yeah. eight. Okay. Um, which I think is a reasonable time to... I, th I think I was eight when mm. I worked it out. Well, you and Donald Trump agree on that, apparently. Oh, really? Wasn't that, that was the kid was about eight, wasn't it? Oh, no, the kid was oh, like yeah, 12 yeah. or something, yeah. I think. But <laughs> don't, don't say I agree with Donald Trump on anything, please, Will. Um, <laughs> it's very upsetting. Um, uh, so, well, you were just saying before that you wanted to build a wall around uh, Australia to keep New Zealanders out. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you said it. And my hands are minuscule. Yeah. Um, so after the argument, I, I go and see Digby and I go... Dad's a bit annoyed with me because I told you the truth about Santa. And he goes, never mind. But since I've told you something, would you like me to tell you something? Yep. And I went, okay, what do you want to tell me? And he goes, there is no ghost. I am Jordan Doorbell. I have, I have never loved him so much as I loved him in that moment. 
I mean, it's an amazing story. So yeah, it's considerably longer on Netflix with more gags, but um, like I was just like, like his mind, like his beautiful little mind, and the fact that in his mind we're on a level, and I've treated mm. him like an adult, so he's going to treat me like an adult, like we're, you know, we're mates. We can talk right. about this sort of stuff, but but the weird thing now is, like a year and a half later, he claims not to remember. Jordan Doorbell, like he has a vague memory of being the ghost and he's back to believing in Santa again. Well, because he's worked out the, he's, he's smart enough to work out yep. that if you believe in Santa, you're going to get more get, presents. Get yeah. more presents, <laughs> <Yeah>. exactly. <laughs> yeah. But like, so my husband was like, I don't understand what's happening. And I was like, neither do I, but we'll just go with it. Like whatever he wants to do, that's fine. Uh, that, that's interesting to me though. Is he, does he have an awareness that you talk about him in your Yeah, act? yeah. So it's, I'll tell him, I'll say, I told a story about you on stage. And, he, Today. and, and he, he's, he's okay like, with that? Yeah, he's like, did they laugh? Like, I'm like, yeah, yeah. He's seen me do stand-up once at the Queenscliff Music Festival. It was like a morning show and it was sort of um, allegedly PG. Um, and his takeaway from that was that I said shit, which he was like, I can't believe you said shit. And I, so I said to him, I only say it uh, at work and I never mm. say it when I'm at home. And he was like, that's fair enough. So my justification, like I never do it in front of hundreds of people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and Justin Hamilton said piss. And that was the highlight of his life up to that point. Like that was Tom Bella, this fantastic stuff about being at a gay club and stuff that all went over Digby's head and everything. But Justin saying piss was like magnificent. Bravo. Uh, it's interesting to me that though, because our job is a bit of an unconventional job for, I mean, I, I guess maybe lots of people's jobs are unconventional for their children to understand because I grew up, you know, with, with farmers as parents. Yeah. So I was very aware of what my parents' job was because it happened where we live. Yeah, you're immersed and, in it, aren't and you? And I was taken to it quite often. Yeah. So if dad told me he was going to milk cows, I knew exactly what that looked like. Or if he was going to like, you know, you know do the irrigation or, you know, go and whatever it yeah, was that he was doing on the farm. Yeah, you've got concrete experience of that. I yeah. literally had been in the tractor with him while he bailed hay or whatever. I yeah. understood what it was, even if I didn't necessarily understand how to do it. Mm. Whereas I guess for a whole lot of jobs, if your dad's an accountant or whatever, he leaves in the morning, he gets home at night or, yeah. you know, whatever, and you don't necessarily know. But I think that our job, uh, you know, particularly the stand-up part of our job is one of those things that because it's probably not appropriate for young people either, Yes, it's a long while before they're introduced to it. Yes. My nephew, Riley, came and saw, he's like 12, he's, well, he's just going into high school now, so just this year. And so he came and saw my show at the festival this time for the, for the, yep. for the, for their very first time. And you could see something very much change in his ah. mind between what he obviously thought my job was and what yeah, yeah. he saw that my job actually is. And also I imagine for him seeing all of those people adoring his uncle, like, and being impressed by his uncle. Like that's a different, that's puts you in a different context from Uncle Will who comes around to his house. Like that's a whole, it's a whole different, it, it like that makes you quite powerful. I guess it is. Like, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to imagine what it's like hmm. from a young person's experience, but I, I imagine even weirder though, if that person happens, like, he kind of gets that, you know, I'm on the TV and I have a radio show. They yep. sometimes listen to that, you know, but if it's your mum, you know, yeah. like if it's your dad, like I imagine there's a whole different step to that. Or is it just normal because it's all he's ever known? It's all he's ever known. And so like he hasn't come and seen a show of mine. Imagine if Riley had come and seen you when he was three or four or something right. like that. He'd be like, oh, that's just what Uncle Will does. Like, so Digby is entirely unimpressed by what I do. Like he's right. got 
it's of no interest to him whatsoever. You know, like all he is excited about is does it mean we get to stay in a hotel? Like right. if I take him <laughs> take him with me to a gig, he's like, well, this hotel's not very good. Like he, he's got many opinions about how many stars hotel should have. So he has like, he, he loves that aspect of it. He's so funny. Um, uh, but he is not impressed that I have been on TV or the radio or that I do shows. But I imagine when he is older as a teenager, I will be the most mortifying thing that has ever happened. And then later on he might get a feeling for it. But but I think it's just what his mum does. So that's what people's parents do, you know, like so that's what Claire Hooper does. Or, you know, like like my friends, that's just what people's parents do. It's not a weird thing. I'm glad that he stopped describing it as my mummy does shows because I feel like that has a a late night element to it that perhaps <laughs> um, and my favourite thing was the hardest gig I've had to do in recent years was go and talk to his school about my job so they asked if I'd come along and oh, talk great. to the kids. No I want to hear all about yeah, this. So, uh, so from like preppies to I think it was grade one to grade six and, and was this just you speaking just or was me. it a range of... Yeah, no, no, okay. it was just no, me. Just so you. it was like people's parents coming in to talk about their jobs and then it was my turn. And uh, so it was like, I don't know, 150 kids or something like that. And uh, one of the teachers said... And like everybody knows me at school because it's a tiny school. There's only 200 kids there and I'm Digby's mum. And so... Uh, I went in and one of the teachers went, we wanted to um, play some of your clips to the kids before you came in, but mm. there was none that we could no. use. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's at primary school. Yeah. I often go on TV shows that say we couldn't find anything yeah. that we could use. <laughs> um, so uh, so I had a chat to them and it was great. It was really, um, they were really interested in it. And then the question and answer session was basically uh, just different children asking if I knew Hamish and Andy. <laughs> So the like, do you know? Who Did you him? say? Yeah, yes, go, yes, yes. yes I, I went with him. Yes. yes. Or what famous people have you met? Mm. And then thinking, oh, what famous people do you know at your age that would the people I'm impressed by you won't be impressed by? So I was like, well, Lady Gaga, ooh. Like, <laughs> and then um, my favourite questions were, how old are you, and what's your favourite food? So, well, um, how old are you? I'm 48. And what is your favourite food? Uh, I think I said it was Thai. Oh, just really? Like the, all of Thai. All of Thailand's food. I mean, also, that's not really impressive to primary school children, no, no, Thai. Oh, maybe if I'd said, like, you know, like, oh, scorpions or something yeah. like that, it would have been <laughs> more exciting. Uh, okay. So, you, you primary school, uh, you know, feels like it was an okay experience yeah. for you. It feels like yeah. you had some you know, good feelings about that. How was the transition into senior school? Well, we have this thing in New Zealand called intermediate school. Oh, tell me what that is. So that's two years of school that's not primary school and not secondary school. Oh, so you crazy kids. I know. So you go to grade four and then you go to intermediate school for grade five and six and then you start at grade seven. But we also start at the age of five. You start, I think this still happens. I don't know. I haven't asked a child about this, but when I went to school in New Zealand, you start the day you turn five. So your whole... Um, oh, the day? Yeah. So, so not you, at the start of the year. No, just you start on your birthday. Just randomly whenever yeah. you... What a way to ruin your birthday for a start. No, it's exciting because you go to school okay. and then you're like, oh, this happens every day. Yeah. Um, every day's your birthday. Uh, <laughs> in that you're going to school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except for Saturday and Sunday. Um, so, yeah, so this, the class would get bigger over the year. And then, like, my birthday's in October, so I had, like, a little bit, a bit of extra prep because I was, wasn't old enough to go on to the next class. Right. But yeah, so you just, so I find it so weird that you'd start school at six and that you all start at the same time. Like, 
It's like, but you just start when you turn five. Like, I mean, I, I, isn't that a great example though of you think something's weird if it's not the way you were raised? Absolutely. Because hearing you describe that to me, I'm like, that is the stupidest, yep. craziest yep. system of all time. Yep. Some poor kid who's been there from January, yeah. like with three other people, yep. who's learned hey. by December. There's four thousand children. <laughs> All idiots. None yep. of them know what's going <laughs> what, what, what? on. They've what? only been there a week. Yep. <laughs> None of them can read. Yeah, but yeah, it's exactly it's exactly like that. But that just seemed like a normal thing. Uh, so, you, okay. Well, you, yeah, when so you intermediate then, school. Yeah, so you do intermediate school. Yep. Which, which is that the same place or at a different, different school? school? Different school. So it's kind of weird. I suppose you have these little tiny schools that are only two years worth of okay. kids. Um, and I loved intermediate school. I had a, um, a couple of really great teachers. And uh, that's where I started doing drama. Okay. Properly. So drama as a course. As a, no, as a, as an after school activity like, oh, kind okay. of thing. Yep. Um, and I met a couple of friends there that I still have. Like, um, yeah, and and just it was a it was a little tiny school. I really enjoyed it. There was like I start, did I oh no that's I didn't start playing the flute until I went to high school. Oh no, I started playing it at intermediate school. Yeah, so I was like getting music lessons, which I never practiced for, and it was an entire waste of money. I'm very sorry, Barbara and Graham. Um, that, but, but that, that kind that, of creativity way, is pretty much all music lessons for most children. Yes, I think. Yes, I think it's rare. Occasionally, you get a kid who practices their, you know, for their music lessons. But mostly, it's parents wasting money on yes, things that'll yeah. never be used again. And that I, you know, that I bitterly regret now. Like how great to be able to uh, accompany myself in a comedy song for my job. But oh, so much of. Like, I mean, every day at school, we had French lessons. I would, I would give somebody $10,000 right now if I could like speak oh, some French. Just go over and do some gigs in France. I would love to. I'd love to be able to speak French. They taught us Japanese at school. I didn't listen because yeah. I thought, why well, would why I ever want to speak this? another yeah. language? <laughs> right? Like, oh yeah. If I could go back and tell myself to pay attention to things that I would oh. like to know now oh. that they were trying to teach me for oh. free. And I was like, no. La, 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 la. And have you started saying that to young people that you know? Like, have you started to go, look, if you can learn to revise as you go and you don't cram before your last exam, it will stand you in really good stead. Like, I remember trying to urgently communicate to a friend's kid of like, don't, just don't, just, I know you're really bright, but just study all you can. And if you get into the habit of good deadlines, it'll be really great. And he's like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, I, I wanted to talk about that because I think that, there is something particularly in the music thing where I, I'm the same. I, I did organ lessons, not piano. We didn't have piano. We had organ, uh, electric keyboard, really. You know, I guess it was. So and was it one of those ones that's in the family room and it's got all of the layers of keyboards and the stops and stuff like that? It's like a Hammond or something. Well, it wasn't quite that. It wasn't quite as old school as the one right. you're imagining. But imagine a, a cheaper, more modern version yeah, of right. what you're imagining. So when yes. you switch it on, it doesn't go, ooh, you don't have that kind of hum. No, oh, but right. it wasn't much advanced yeah, than that. Right. So yeah, in a linear sort of sense, <laughs> yeah. you're in the right zone. Yeah, but, but not just, quite the right era. Yeah, exactly. Imagine a cheap knockoff of that. Yeah. Imagine the Matt Blatt version of whatever <laughs> that organ is. And the, it's the one that Country country Target got. Yeah, like exactly. Very say, much. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. So uh, I did that and I also played the flute. Did you? Yes. The least practical of all oh, musical instruments. And a horrible sounding instrument. I horrible. Hate, I don't like the flute. I don't know why it's Too a... Too breathy. Well, I just don't know why it's an instrument yeah. that anyone ever encourages children to play. There's always 47 flutes in junior orchestra. I don't... Why? Why is that? Flute is not... A, like, it's not something that 
for the rest of your life in any way. The You'll skills pick that you flute. pick up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we're sitting around a campfire. I'll just get my flute out. That never happens. There's it's always a guitar. Always a guitar. Teach 95% oh, of people guitar. I wish I had learnt the guitar. I right? wish that's the one I'd learnt. Guitar, drums, anything that's around all the time that people still yeah. use. But why are you teaching people flute? Hang it on. is an unnecessary skill. It has no life purposes. No, none. Flutes are really expensive. They sound terrible most of the time until most you're good time. at it. Yes. Like on, the only people who make the flute sound good are the people who are world-class flautists. Like and it's a terrible instrument yes. up until that point. And also, how did it get designed the way it's designed? So it's designed to stick out the side of your head. So right. why would you not hold it in front of you like a recorder or an oboe or a clarinet or all those other instruments that make sense? It's like there's just always been too many flutes and you need it to be at the side so there's enough room for everybody to sit close or something like it's a... You don't have to breathe in a way that is applicable for any anything, other instrument. Because if you learn how to play like, you know, some, the trumpet, you can play the trombone. Right? Yep. If you learn how to play the clarinet, you can play the oboe. You learn yep. how to play the flute. Oh, you can play, you can the, play piccolo. the piccolo. Yeah. Right. A smaller flute. Your <laughs> only other option yeah. is a smaller flute. Yeah. <laughs> and like, what are the what are the great flute pieces? Like, you don't, you know, like you're not going to be playing Smoke on the Water, or you know, there's not. Right. It's not a rock instrument. I think Jethro, Jethro Tull, Tull was like the last time. The fact that we both went to the same reference the indicates only, yeah. And there was some sexy flautist who did albums at one stage. Oh. She was like, her name might have been Jane somewhere or someone, and she was like the. You know how there's always like a Nigel Kennedy yes. or whatever who's yeah, like a Richard Clayderman. Yeah, they've or something. Ta- they've taken like an instrument that's normally quite boring, and they're the kind of rock and roll version of like Yo Yo Ma or these yeah, sort of yeah, people. Yeah. And you always know one person yep. who plays that instrument. There was a woman called I reckon Jane, someone who was famous for like being naked on the front of her flute albums oh, in a tasteful you way. You get very but, hot when you play the flute, though. Yeah, so it's fair enough. It's very... <laughs> Just the worst. I, and I've still got the flute that my parents bought me and I tried to play it the other day and it was a shit flute back yeah. then and I cannot get a sound out of it. I don't have the flute because I know that when I went to university, I hocked my flute for oh. money. Yeah. Went to cash converters. My wow. flute. Probably still sitting there. Because I can't imagine anyone's yeah. gone in for a second hand <laughs> flute. I'll, I'll go and take mine and they'll be like, we've got Will Anderson's yeah. flute right here. <laughs> The only thing I liked about flute lessons was I was the only man in a well, oh, boy, yes. as I would have been at that stage. Um, I was un- the only boy in the class. So you I did actually. discovered it early on. Yeah, yeah. I did pick up a few, like, you know, probably a little bit of inside knowledge about, uh, you know, the women uh, and what they were really talking about. Yep. Because if you're the only man in a group of women, eventually they kind of forget that yes. you're there and yep. they just start talking like they talk themselves. Yep. And so I did pick up some handy ins- information. What did you pick up? Is there anything that sticks out? Uh, I mean, you know what it is? It's all, it was all the misconception stuff. Like it was, <gasps> it would, it would give me a better insight into, because quite a lot of the time, particularly, you know, in those early teen mm-hmm. years, there are just so many misconceptions about what one side believes and what the yeah, other, yeah. like what boys and girls believe, even in the same situation, the way that things are being yep. interpreted are so diametrically opposite that they are, they don't even occur to you, yes. you know, as in like, you know, the boy will never it occur to the boy that the, it's not like the boy is overlooking the way that that no, girl no, it's is just thinking not even a thing because it's not even about. occurred to them yep. that that would be a thing that they were thinking yes. and vice versa. Yes. And so it gave me a little bridge between those two to yeah, realize that somehow there were at least other things that could be considered. Yep. <laughs> you know, even if I was not, you know, evolved in any way enough to understand 
the deepness and complexity of what those things were or to be able to consider them, to at least be alerted to the fact the that existence. they existed yeah, was, yeah. was in of itself you yeah, know, and interesting. I, and I imagine also giving you opportunity to understand that girls were people as well and you could talk to them. Oh, and I, I'd always actually had a reasonable capacity to talk with girls. Um, I was, I was your perfect sort of, um, uh, person to talk with girls because I was, you know, reasonably well educated compared to some of the other, you know, boys of my age, mm-hmm. you know, certainly wasn't that sort of weird mess of like sporty, you know, hormones of like wanting to punch you and run away sort yeah, of, that yeah. wasn't my, I was a bit more, you know, you're chubbier, nerdier, you know, used my wit, you know, yes. that, that was quite an attractive proposition for, yeah, yeah. So I was a non-threatening man. I was going to say non-threatening yes. man. Um, so were you a chubby child? Yes. So this is my. Th- In my intermediate years. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, um, <laughs> I feel that often, um, people who are good looking straight away often are able to rely on being good looking straight away. But if you are chubby or clumsy or you have some other thing, it requires you to develop your personality. And I think it's an advantage when you when you get good looking, you're um you've also got a personality. What a what a what an incredibly massive generalization I've just made that's probably upset so many hot people who go, I also have a personality. No, hot people don't listen to podcasts. It's, it's a fine. very good point. This is a really good place to <laughs> really good place to put that opinion out in a very safe environment where no hot person is ever going. Yeah. The only way a hot person will have heard that is if they're actually driving past another car that's listening to it yeah, right and they've now. They've got to turn up really loud. They're on their way to the beach and there's yeah. a pause in the dance music that they're blasting yeah. over their coronas and they're, they're drinking the in the background. The convertible has got yep. the roof down so yep. they can hear it yep. really <laughs> easily. Yeah. What did she just say? That's okay. I'm beautiful. Look back yeah. in the mirror. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I agree with you to a certain extent, you know, which is that idea that, and it's particularly, I think, probably damaging for, and I hope this is probably changing, but, uh, you know, there used to be that thing of like, the, particularly the girl who was, you know, hot at high school, yep. lived in a world where you never understood because doors would just naturally open for you, you know, yeah, yeah. everybody would do, you know, what it was that you wanted to do. And that's not the fault of that person. No, no, you know, but it's They just, just start to live in a world where... It's easy. It's easy. Yeah. You know, they start to live in a world where they walk into the dressing room and the fruit platter's there and they assume the fruit platter is for them. Because why wouldn't it be? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. it always is. Yeah. Whereas, you know, the person who doesn't grow up like that, you know, has a different perspective yeah, on that world. Yeah, they're always like, oh, I'm so sorry, someone's left a fruit platter here. Yeah. Is this in the wrong room? Yeah, whose fruit platter yeah. is this? <laughs> Would anyone like some of the fruit? Yeah. You guys want some fruit as well, right? <laughs> This must be some terrible prank. Why have you left this fruit? It's poisoned. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So you, you get you get to high school after mm-hmm. intermediate school. Intermediate, intermediate school. Intermediate school. Yep. Uh, you're, you're playing the flute. Yep. Um, what else are you doing? Um, I am doing, uh, I think I'm in the drama. There's a major production every second year at the school that I went to. And okay. so I think, um, oh, this is controversial. Uh, we did a musical called Showboat. And this is Christchurch in 1984, and there weren't enough uh, black people in Christchurch. So we were, um, we played the black children, the African American children, and we were coloured with makeup. Blackface is what you're yeah, saying. You wore blackface. And I'm so grateful that social media did not exist in 1984. But yeah, we were, we were blacked up as, and, the, and they were re- referred to as coloured folk. In the songs and stuff, like looking mm. back, like 
that's only 1984. Like, that's pretty bad. Yeah. Or the or it's book week in Australia like two yeah. years ago. So. <laughs> God. It amazes, it's, it, every time that happens, and because it does happen every time, yeah. I'm like, have you not been listening? Like, have what? Yeah. And it's, it's always amazing. book week. Someone's coming. Book week. Someone's come and ruined book week with another blackface yeah, incident. And it's not, a, it's not the kid's fault. It's the no. parent that's gone, oh, it's only a bit of fun, or nobody really likes him. Like, yeah. there's always some <laughs> dumb reason. Uh, well, here's, I, I have a very similar experience, you know, again, often like on this podcast, what we're dealing with is, is that idea of going, how much can you blame someone for doing something when they did not know that it was the wrong yeah. thing to do versus people who then continue to do that thing once they know it's yeah, the wrong the, thing that, to do. Right. And the they thing, are two yeah. different yeah. states. Yeah. I think you can forgive people a lot of things for what they did not know was yeah, true at the time. as long as they learn, like right. as long, like if I was like, oh, I'm going to reboot Showboat and I'm going to do the same thing again. Like, oh, I am the, I am despicable. But it's like, you know, well, you don't know, now you know. So this is your chance to get better, kind of. So we did The King and I at high school. Right. And uh, The King in The King and I mm-hmm. uh, is uh, from, uh, he's the King of Siam. And so I played The King in The King and I and I yellowed up. So yeah, it was like a uh, fake tan. It yep. was like, you know, sort of old school orange fake tan, not in the face, which again, must've been a weird and confusing look very <laughs> well, much. So your body was. Yeah. Because like, well, cause the uniform was much like what, much like what you would imagine the costume was uh, like what you would imagine MC hammer would have been rocking around with at yeah, the time. Right, yep. So some sort of gold sort of hammer knee length pants, hammer yep. pants. And then sort of like an open sort of vest top with Great. exposing like a prepubescent. Oh, how wonderful. Teen yellowed up body. How wonderful. Oh, yeah. Oh, was that, so was that would have been a mixture of pride and agony for you of like, <laughs> I am the king of Siam, but also don't look at me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was horrible. And the other thing was fake tan, not quite as advanced in those days as it is these days. So I had under my armpits and at the back of my knees, I reckon I had fake tan for at least a fortnight wow. after we finished doing the production. Amazing. We we played Beatles in another play uh, at, the, at the end of my high school not career. Not the Beatles. No, not the Beatles. No. It was from, it was like a, the Brothers Korsakov or something. It was like called the Beatle play. And so we'd given ourselves these stylized um, faces with like big red cheeks and a black kind of outline around our faces and big eyes and stuff, but it was really cheap makeup and we developed horrendous rashes from it. And so even when we were out of makeup, we had the imprint of the makeup on our faces. So like big red circles and a big red line. Amazing. School productions are incredible. So where were you in the school production? Because uh, I was speaking to uh, Virginia Gay the other day and she was talking about the fact that, um, you know, she was never the leading lady. She was never the Juliet. She was never the Cinderella. She was always the sort of, awkwardly recast, you know, male role played by a female or the, you know, the wacky best friend or, you know, these sort of things. What was your role in these productions? Uh, The first year it was uh, as as part of the chorus. And then the third year, I don't think I got in because the cast wasn't big enough. And then in my final year at high school, um, the teacher had chosen the play based on the number of parts it had for girls because there were lots of really enthusiastic girls that wanted to be in the major production. Uh, So that sounds great, but it was like, okay, there's 30 women in this, but they've all got one line. So it was called The Doctor and the Devils, and it was about the body snatchers, Burke and Hare in Edinburgh. And so I think I I had one line, or two lines, I think it was like, um, what academy were you wanting? And hello, I think were my two (laughs) lines, which I can still remember amazingly. Um, (laughs) So there was like a lot of, I I loved the rehearsals and I loved the, you know, being in the show, but stage time was very small. 
So I imagine then that were you looking, you if you're only having a line in yeah. your sort of end of year production, it, it, that is that the sort of thing that is propelling you towards a career in show business, or is, at that stage were you just doing this for fun and didn't think it was going to I, be what you did? I think I thought that I was going to be an actor, but I was probably going to end up being a teacher because I think in my head at that stage girls were teachers or nurses and. I hate any kind of bodily unpleasantness. So like I'll be a teacher and my mum was a teacher. Um, and then I thought <clears throat> I would like to be an actor, but I had no concept of what that actually means or like in my head, it was like, Oh, you just go and knock on a theater door and go, I'd like to be an actor and they employ you. And then in my last year at high school, I did drama as a subject, which was a um, subject for the year below. So my parents were sort of a bit upset that I was only doing four seventh form subjects and a sixth form subject and worried about me getting into university. But it was all fine. But then theatre sports hit Christchurch and we started playing theatre sports and that is really the start of where my performing career happened and it was through doing improvised comedy. And like theatre sports, um, when it's bad, it's the most appalling thing you've ever experienced and you want to burn your eyes. But when it's great, it's sublime. So um, it was such great training for stand-up comedy to to always know that you can walk out on stage and if you've forgotten everything that you were supposed to say, you'll come up with something. And the, and I was on stage for five years before I started doing stand-up. So, so my first attempts at stand-up weren't as, um, weren't of the magnitude that other people's are, you know, like when people talk about, Oh, you know, the first time I did it or what it felt like. And I'm like, I, I don't remember it that well because I was already really comfortable performing. Theatre sports was also where I started performing at, at high school. And certainly the first time that I ever got, laughs on stage yep. or in any context was playing theatre sports. And what did you learn from doing improv uh, that, you know, you sort of, I guess, take with you not only into your career, but I guess, you know, more broadly into your life? Is there like attitudes of, you know, the yeah. way that you have to perform with each other in improvisation that you take out of that? Yeah, well, totally. Like I think um, teaching stand-ups to do improv is the hardest job I've ever had because Improv is all about collaboration and making something together and stand-up is all about you get the laughs and you you win depending on how many laughs you get. Whereas um, improv is like, well, if I've set you up for a laugh and you've got the laugh, we still got the laugh. Like We got the laugh. Yeah, we got yeah. the laugh. We all made this thing together. It was lovely and, and you support other people and it's much more – it's that collaboration which I um, I really love and I also like – one of the things I love doing now is I like watching someone else's um, uh, trial show and giving them notes. On, on like here's something I think you should explore that or here's a gag or like um, obviously if they've asked me I don't just turn up to people's shows and be like I've got some thoughts that'd but... be even better yeah. <laughs> what a great show to pitch a network <laughs> <laughs> undercover Cal <laughs> Like, I, I like the idea, too, that at the start you're in disguise in each one, and you're in the audience, and then you just, like, with pop a, out. Yeah, pop out with a few minutes to go. Well, I've got some thoughts. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> please, please do. Um, yeah, so I really, I love that, uh, because because for me, as long as the laugh is had, it doesn't really matter who gets it. So I get as much enjoyment out of someone doing a line that I've given them as I would doing it myself. Like I, I love seeing that that thing has been made better because we work together. It's a hard thing to sometimes uh, get your head around. And I do think there is a difference between, you know, that stand up way of thinking versus that collaborative mm. way of thinking. And it's why, uh, you know, in LA, New York, you know, these sort of places, they often for writers rooms are more tempted to hire improvisers yep. than they are to hire stand-ups as writers because improvisers know how to build something together yeah. versus, you know, stand-ups who are really looking for, well, I do this line and I do yes. this thing yeah, and yeah. it all has to be about that. Um, 
I've often said to people, you know, if asked for advice on things, I said, if everybody's funny, like if the show's funny, they, the people listening to it think everybody's funny. Yes. Yeah, totally. Right. The only time people are counting who's getting the most laughs is if the show is not working. Yes. Then it might get down to, well, he's funny and she's funny, but that person's not funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if the whole thing's working together. Everyone Everyone's is funny. funny. Yeah, totally. It's such a good point. Like, cause yeah, cause you're all sharing, you're sharing the show, you're sharing yeah. the scene or whatever. Um, so, and also the thing, uh, the thing that I feel it's taught me is to say yes to stuff. Cause that's one of the big improv rules is that mm. never, you don't say no, you say yes. If someone gives you an offer, you say yes to it. And, and that's like taking that little leap of faith is a really, um, a good lesson to go, well, I'll say yes and then see what happens. Do you use that? Um, you know, when you're constructing a show now, because I'm, you're doing a new show yes, for the festival, yeah, yeah. and so when you sit down to think about, you know, I'm going to do a new show. Yeah, where where does that thought process start of like actually developing, you know, a new hour, a new you know performance that you're going to show people? Well, it's really changed because it used to be that I would sit down and I would write everything out, and then I would try it out once I'd kind of learn it. Uh, but now what I do is I I have something that I've been thinking about, and so I'll give myself like a a couple of notes about it and then I'll go on stage and I'll talk to the audience about it. So um, it will be more of a conversation that then turns into me working my ideas out. Like, I, like I've got a thing that I'm working on at the moment which is not funny yet but will be funny is that um, so you, you and I are both animal people like we love animals and so when my cat died I was in New Zealand and so Chris took the cat to the vet for the vet to keep the cat for a couple of days so I could summon, come and say goodbye to him. Yeah. And so uh, I go, I don't know whether that's a weird thing to say to other people. Like, So I was saying to the audience, like, is it weird that he kept the cat in the fridge for me for a couple of days? And, like, you could see the people in the audience that were cat people being like, no, that's totally fine. And then the people that didn't have pets were like, I'm not really sure what's happening kind of thing. But just kind of um, testing stuff out and having a chat. And because improv is a conversation between people, like I really, I love it when the audience talks to me and we work out something together and then that in turn becomes a story that I can tell again and like it kind of grows, it's like growing yeah. it. Well, I relate to that because I was overseas when my granddad died and my family did the exact same thing, just to, you know. At the vet? <laughs> just kept him in the fridge at home just so that I could say goodbye. Oh, uh, no, at least uh, on a chest freezer. When we, um, uh, when it, one of our cats died last year, we were talking about this before we started, um, he died at the vet and, um, we brought him home while he was dead and yeah. had some time with him yeah. at home yeah. before we took him back to the vet yeah. because we were like, even though he's not you know, here now, we want to like spend some time with yeah. him at home and we want our last memories at least to be a lovely at home, at home. Yeah. before we take him back yeah. to the vet. And I'm sure people think that's really weird, yeah. but for us, it was very important. Yeah. To yeah, do. totally. Um, and like, did your other animals, did the, did you let them see your cat? after he died or was that like to kind of go, this is what's happened? Cause I know that my other cat was like, I don't know what, I don't know where my friend's gone. I think, well, yeah, we let de definitely the other, uh, the other cat that was at home did the dogs. I think we were careful yeah, because yeah. you know, you don't want to, like, oh, I mean, there's, oh, there's a whole other yeah. horrible memory waiting to happen. Yeah. There oh, lunch. You, yeah. <laughs> you get that wrong. Yeah. If you look in the wrong direction for a second, that's a, uh, well, yeah. this, this didn't work out the way that yeah. we were hoping it would. Oh, oh I'm so sorry. I this, thought you were, oh. <laughs> this hasn't been as healing as I just went to the toilet. I wasn't thinking. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the thing I loved that I really loved about my vet who I've followed from one vet practice to another, cause I 
he's so lovely and kind, uh, is that when he was talking to me about what he thought Spook had died of, he was still stroking him as if he was alive. And it was such a lovely, caring thing, which of course now is a piece of material where I go, he's, he's so beautiful or he's just really unobservant. Mm. Like, <laughs> so, so the thing, you know, there's like, well, there's like the moment that happens when something happens that's sad or weird and, and your brain immediately goes to, oh, the, but the funny part of this is kind of thing. And then, and then I work that out and then, I, but I do it on stage because I've discovered I need the feedback and it's much more freeing and you're not going, oh, oh, I forgot what I wrote for that. But like, you just see where it goes and then it either works or it doesn't. And like, I record my trials and listen back to them, which is its own kind of hell, but it's really useful to go, oh yeah, there's something there. There's something in that idea. So it's kind of more working it out as I go rather than trying to write it all down beforehand and see if the whole thing works. It makes sense to me. I mean, comedy is, is a conversation yeah. with an audience. And, you know, one of the most important things is to listen. And often, you know, you can get a laugh on something by just reacting to their reaction, yeah. you know, yeah. the look on your face or the, you know, way that you move your body in reaction to their reaction. Yeah, yeah. If you're in the moment and you're listening to them yeah. and your reaction is natural, the laugh can be bigger than something that you've planned to just. Absolutely. And I think it's that awareness that I don't even, or maybe it's like a subconscious thing, but everybody knows that that moment will never happen again. Everyone knows that that moment has only happened once it can only happen once you know like, like yeah like you can talk about that moment again and you get a different kind of laugh from it but that magic when somebody says something and then someone else says something and then all of a sudden this new joke has happened or this new experience has happened or and even for me like sometimes in my shows like when I chat to the audience like I've had people admit stuff that's quite serious like and to be able to be in that moment and acknowledge the seriousness of it and then move on and bring it back to being funny again. That's also really exciting as well. Like it's, um, it's just, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's that the, the moment that you're having in the room that will never happen again. So I'm very interested. Um, you know, you said that you listen back to the shows and one of the things that I've tried to promise myself this year, I'm just looking for, I'm always looking for ways to, you know, do better at mm -hmm. what I do. And, you know, one of the ones that I've known for years, it's on my list every year I, and I record every show that yep. I do, but I so rarely listen back. Yep. I will listen back if there's been a, you know, I had three months off between shows at one stage this year. So before I did the opera house, I listened to a recording of, yep. you know, one of the shows that I'd done. Um, I occasionally, if I improvise a huge chunk on stage that went really well and it kind of came out the right way, I might have a listen to that to, you know, see if I can replicate mm. it. Um, but in a general sense, I don't, I don't listen back in the way that I should. And so I decided this year that I was like, you know, much like just saying I'm going to do push-ups every yeah. day or whatever it is, I am going to just listen back to the shows no matter how hard it is yeah. to do. Now, I haven't done any shows this year yet, and I think it's partly because I know that as soon as I do, You're I'm going to have to, listen to start yourself. listening back to them, <laughs> uh, which is a horrible thing. But how do you find that process of being self critical I guess I mean I'm very good at being self-critical so it's uh just another way to do it um but what is really useful I've what I was doing last year was as I was driving into the gig I was listening to the show from last night so like hearing what I'd done the night before as I was about to do it again and you don't find that that, that um means that you take that show onto stage no that no because I can go oh you thought you were speaking more slowly but you actually really raced through that part or that's a nice part that didn't work 
So you, it, and, and it also puts me in the mindset of I'm about to go to work and I'm in the work space. Cause I, I don't know about you. Like I, I, um, if I can't watch a show before my show, because if I'm watching a show before my show, I'm a passenger and I'm a, I'm an audience member and it's not the same mindset of I'm a performer. I'm about to go and entertain you. And if, if I watch a show before my show, my show is never great. Funnily enough for me, it, well, same, absolutely the same, but maybe for different reasons, which is I often feel like I expel almost as much energy watching yeah, a show right. yeah, as I yeah. do performing a yeah, show. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Like, you know, there's a part of me that just cannot, like, relax yes. watching a show. Yeah. And the other thing is that I I, I can be a real chameleon with yes. like, you know, just picking up, if somebody particularly has a mannerism yeah, a mannerism yep. or a distinctive way of saying a word yeah, or yeah, whatever, yeah. I will often find that if I immediately go into my show, there's still a bit of the rhythm or language yep. of yep. the show that I've seen previously yeah. that will influence it. And not ongoing, literally no, just no, a moment and for you go, that oh, night and yeah. then it goes away. But it's because you've seen that thing beforehand. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's always, you see it in young comedians as well. Like, um, that, you know, I mean, when Daniel Kitson came out here for the first time, suddenly there were a hundred little Daniel Kitsons running around. Like, um, or when I moved from New Zealand to Australia, I was like, oh, everyone's watched Greg Fleet. Mm. Like, there was that, um, you know, you can just see the, and I, I saw my first um, Luke McGregor copy the other day, you know, like, <clears throat> so it's, um, you can see it because you love it and you go, oh, that makes me laugh so much and I love that so much. I'd like to be like that before you realise you've just got to be yourself and that's where the, the most funniness will come from. Okay. So t- take me back to when you started doing stand-up. Mm-hmm. Did you start, you started in New Zealand? Yeah, in Christchurch. So we started a, uh, an improv show called Sked Scriptless, which is uh, still running 29 years later right. uh, in, in Christchurch. So it was a late night show on a Friday night uh, and I think I was 19 when we started and we learnt on stage. Like, so we basically learnt our craft on stage. And so we were in this unique environment where the theatre didn't charge us rent for rehearsal space. They took a nominal cut from our show on a Friday night. And so we were getting paid to learn our craft, I suppose. So I'd done that for about five years. So that was how, when I was at university, I paid my rent by doing improv. Like I've I have had such a charmed start to do that, to not be, you know, having to make money in another way. Um, So we did that for about five years and we were doing corporate improv as well. So, you know, you go and do Christmas parties for companies and you'd have little bits of information about the company that you could throw out and, uh, you know, I can't believe you knew about Debbie, you know, kind of thing. And um, then the guy that was directing our company went, we need to offer more a range of services for our corporate clients, we need to be able to offer stand-up as well. So you, you, and you go and write some stand-up. And that's literally how it started. I hadn't ever thought, like I remember having the thought, oh, I'd like to do stand-up, but I don't think I'm funny like that. And and dismiss that thought. And then because someone else went, we've got to, we need to offer another range. Like, so we went off and wrote some stand-up and it wasn't great, but Christchurch was very generous to us because it didn't have a stand-up comedy scene and it already knew us and trusted us from our show. Like we, 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 the show was really popular that we were doing. And so they were very um, lenient, I think, on four people doing shit stand up for the first time. But because I'd come from improv, I thought that you have to write a new set every week, <laughs> which now I laugh at. Like, oh no, I've got heritage listed material. Um, <laughs> so I thought you had to write a whole 15 minutes every week. So the second time that I did stand up, I remembered everything except the punchlines. 
So I would do my big long setup, and the audience would be like, "Yep, yep, we, oh yep, this is interesting. Where are we go? Oh no, we've moved on. We've moved on. We haven't got a. We've no closure. We've just moved on to a different topic. And oh no, no, we've gone again. We're we're somewhere else. So it was horrifying. But but um, yeah. So stand up was part time compared to improv for a long time. And then even like New Zealand is such a small. Uh, such a small population that there's in Auckland still there's only one dedicated comedy club and it I think it has comedy five nights a week and one of those is open mic and uh, then the second one is like for emerging comedians but it's still like I think it was only really when I came here and I could do comedy more often stand up more often that I really gained some chops so what brought, what brought you to Australia because I'm interested I, I that's obviously when we met but I don't rem- have a memory necessarily of like why it was that you came over. Was that something that you always wanted to yeah, do? Yeah, I, I, I felt that I wanted to leave New Zealand because there just wasn't, there wasn't enough, there weren't enough places to go. There wasn't enough room for a lot of people. Like it's changing now. Like I think you can earn a living from comedy in New Zealand now. And I have friends that do. But at that time I was like, there's just not the opportunities for me. And I'd also gone through uh, an awful relationship breakup and I was like, it'd be just really great to leave the country. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we've all been there. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I, um, I, cause I'd done a show here before and like I had friends, um, I worked with Marianne Carroll in New Zealand. She was uh, at the New Zealand festival. And so, uh, she's obviously involved in the comedy scene over here. And so it was like, I'd come over to see her and I'd kind of meet a few other comedians and the, the Melbourne festival felt like it was something I could do. And then I came over, I did a show, I got best newcomer with Fiona O'Loughlin. And then, um, the next year I came over was when things had really disintegrated at home and Skit House was, had had one season and they, someone from Skit House had seen my show and said, do you want to audition? And I was like, do I want to audition? Like, so I was going to come anyway, but it was the difference between coming with a 15-minute spot at the local and coming to a job. So I really landed well to come here. Like, so I, I and I had a, um, I'd met people at the festival before, so it was kind of like coming to school halfway through the year, but you've already met the kids on holiday. So it was, it was a really, um, it was a really gentle landing for me. Uh, did you always intend to stay? I think so. I mean, sometimes I think, oh, maybe I should have gone to the UK. But then also it's like, oh, I've started again once. Right. Like, um, and I do love it here. And I do, um, yeah, my husband's Australian. My son is half and half, obviously. So, yeah, I do. I, I can't imagine going back to New Zealand to work for an extended period of time. But I really miss it. Like, I still really miss, I miss my people and I miss my landscape. Like, I miss the green and the, just the shape of the land. But but no, well, that's what I guess why I asked because there is like I've I, you know I've loved working overseas, mm. you know, have loved working overseas yep. in my life, and hope to do it, you know, more. But you know, as you know, th- there are those opportunities where you go, well, maybe I'll go and live there permanently and build yeah. my career there. And it's never been exactly what I wanted to do because, yeah. you know, for all its faults, and there are plenty of those as well. This is where I grew up doing this. These yeah, are my yeah. people. This is my home. This is the place where I want to do it. So I, I always do wonder, like, you know, whether you have that same thought process of going, I wish I could be doing the same thing, you know, in New Zealand. Yeah, it's, in- it's interesting, like, cause it, because I feel like, like I had, I'd, I'd done some TV back home and I'd done, um, I used to earn my living by doing voiceovers for ads, mm-hmm. but 
oddly, my accent is not as Doesn't, sought after here. No, really? Yeah. We don't find it as... No, as alluring. Oh. Um, uh, so, <laughs> so coming here to work and getting work and work and work, like my career has really been here. So I view this as this is the place that um, made me kind of thing. And, and now I'm at that point where when I go home to New Zealand... Uh, it's not the place I left anymore. So, you know, y- you can sort of never go back. Like if you go back to the farm now, it's not the same farm that you grew up on. Like things, people move on, but in your head, everything should be the same as it was when you left. And so I go back now. And, or people will ask me about the New Zealand comedy scene and I'll be like, I'm actually not sure. Like I don't know. And now there's, you know, new crops of young comedians coming through that weren't there as I was leaving. So I don't know the new young comics that are coming through New Zealand. I meet them when they come over here and do the comedy festival or things like that. So it's, so now Melbourne really is my home, but then all my, a lot of my real heart friends still live in New Zealand. You know, it's the New Zealand comedy scene though has exploded, you yeah. know, um, obviously, you know, flight of the Concords had a yeah. big, you know, deal to do with that, yeah. but they weren't exclusively the reason for that. There are, you know, Rose Matafeo just Feo, won the, yeah. you know, the best, best show at the Edinburgh festival. Like, you know, there are a range of, you know, brilliant, you know, mm. uh, Guy Montgomery and all these yeah. people. But also just last night I was watching a show on SBS that I'd never heard of before called uh, Wellington Paranormal. Oh, yes. Yeah. Have yeah. That, I haven't know? seen it, but friends of mine work on oh, it. Oh boy. Yeah. It is like, it is properly funny. Like, yeah, you yeah. know, laugh out loud, silly, ridiculous, yeah. like So it's the, two, it's the two yes. cops from what we do in the shadows yes. who, oh, this is shadows. Did you hear that? I just went really well, Kiwi, <laughs> shadows. Um, what we do in the shadows. So they've taken those two characters and they've got their own. Yes. Um, Essentially, it's like, it's, you know, it's, it, it, it feels a little like, uh, you know, a very lo-fi X-Files is basically the way that they've, they've done it, yeah. but it, it very much in that, what we do in the shadows world and yep. universe and in that style of comedy. So if you like, it's, it's, it is, we watched like five episodes in a row right. yesterday, having not known about yeah, it yeah, at yeah. the start of it. Yeah. And it was just so hilarious and delightful. Um, I assume we've done like an hour or so, right? Okay. So we probably should get, like, you know, get to the meaty questions. Yeah, okay, I could right. talk to you about like this all day, yeah. but um, you know, there's some things that I always like to tick okay. off on this podcast and I feel like people would get mad if I don't. So, uh, especially hot people. Yeah. It's especially hot people. Uh, if they've tuned in for the first time, <laughs> hello, hot people. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. Um, death, uh, do you, uh, is death something that, you know, is conscious in your life? Like, do you think about death? Uh, have you thought about death more since you've been a parent? Like, you know, it, how do you feel about death? Oh, how do I feel about death? Uh, um, I'm not afraid of dying or being dead, but I have thoughts about how I'd like to go. Like I'm, I'm, I'm scared of pain. So I hope that when I die, it won't be painful. But in terms of other people, oh, absolutely. The moment, the moment, um, the moment my son was born, everything was just, you know, like you have to keep this person alive. Like, you know, and I would, I would literally sit up in the middle of the night and just go, I can't hear him. It's like, well, it's because he's asleep. Mm. Like, but (laughs) you know, the anxiety of, um, this person is like your heart's been ripped out of your chest and that person is now holding it in their hand and you just love that person so much. And, and they're your responsibility. Um, I, I've actually been listening to grief cast a lot, which is carried Lloyd's podcast and it's conversations with comedians about people they've lost. And it has given me so much, uh, it's, I've just got so much out of it. It's really lovely. It's just people talking honestly about death and grief. And I don't think we do that enough. I think 
one of the things with my son when our cat died was that I wanted him to know that the cat had died and that he hadn't mm. run gone away or gone to the farm or gone to sleep. And I was really, <clears throat> I was really, um, the thing I found difficult is because I don't believe in God. I believe that, that we're probably all linked in some way and it's probably something after we die, but I don't believe in kind of the Christian God. There, there goes my next question, Cal. That's, okay. That's right. normally where this is heading. And yeah, you've right, just right. gone right ahead, spoiled the question I had up my God sleeve. Now I'm going to have to ask you what your favorite food is again. <laughs> Thai. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, because that's, uh, that is part of it. So can we stop there just for a second? Yeah. So were you always of that belief? No, were you raised born, religious? I was a born again Christian when I was a teenager. Oh, oh I've left that out, haven't I? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so my mum, my mum was a Sunday school teacher. Uh, I, started going to youth group and I became a born again Christian basically because I wanted a peer group, like mm. looking back, that's what it was about. And so at, at one stage when our charismatic youth leader was like, who feels the presence of Jesus and other people putting their hands up, I was like, I guess I do. Yeah. Um, so, but I left that, I stopped going to church when, um, it was around the time there was a, a, a homosexual law reform bill happened in New Zealand. So it was to, um, make it legal for gay men to have sex with each other. Um, the age of 16, I think. I can't really remember the details, but at that time, our youth group leaders were saying homosexuality is a sin and it's the devil. And they were also saying things like the devil made dungeons and dragons. So they were off on a lot of The um, devil tangents. was doing a lot of work. He was, look, he was mm. busy. Um, and my best friend came out to me and another friend's older brother who I really loved was gay and one of my favorite teachers was gay. And that made me go, oh, I don't, I don't believe that these people are the devil. I think you might be wrong about some other stuff as well. And I just kind of left it behind then. And I just, I don't know. I believe if there is a God, I don't think he would, he or she or it or they uh, would make something so amazing and then fuck it up. Like, like I don't, I, what's the point? What's the, it's like, you know, building a thing out of Lego and then blowtorching it and going, it's my plan. Like, I just don't, I don't believe in that stuff anymore because it doesn't make sense to me. But I believe that humans are amazing and I think, uh, I, I love the thought that we will we will know the answer when we die of what happens to us. And if there's nothing, then what, what is there to worry about? Because we'll never know. But for that instant, we're like, oh, fuck, there's nothing. Like, or there is something and we find out the answer. And whether we come back or whatever. I, I Yeah, I just can't buy into the idea of a God that punishes people and would do such cruel things or allow such cruel things to happen that happen in the world. Uh, what do you say to, you know, when you're raising a child, when, when well, that question thing. comes up? This is the thing. So uh, when the cat died, I had no, he's gone to heaven. Mm. I had, I had, I didn't have that to fall back on because I don't know if there is a heaven. So what I said to my son was the little spark that makes you, you has twinkled away. And I don't know where that's gone, but like his body, he's got sick and the little spark inside him that makes him, him has, has twinkled away and, uh, his body will go back to the earth and then, you know, plants will grow and things like that. And he was quite happy. He started calling it the little sparkle. And so he had like, which is, I guess, an idea of a soul, I guess, is that, but like the, the part that makes you, you is no longer in the, the body. The body has worn out and the sparkle has no use for the body anymore kind of thing. So, so he was pretty happy with that. I'm pretty happy with that. I gotta be honest, that comforted <laughs> me a little bit. <laughs> um, but also the thing about kids is they don't have the emotional weight that we have with death. So that when, when, uh, Digby's great grandmother died, she died not long after the cat did two separate isolation incidents, but, uh, 
he, like we were upset about it, but he wasn't that upset about it because he doesn't have a lifetime of uh, beliefs and learnings about death. And so Nanny had died and that wasn't necessarily a long-lastingly sad thing. But when I was talking, because I talked to him that she was really sick and that she lived in, um, she didn't live in Melbourne, so we didn't see her that often, like he'd met her twice, I think. And he, because he was quite little at this point, um, so we were in the car after she died and that's always a really good place to have conversations as well because you're, you're together, but it's not intense. You're not looking each other in the eye. You can mm-hmm. just have a chat. And so I said, oh, you know that, um, you know, Nanny who was sick, that Nanny has died. And he said, yes, Nanny's been scrapped. And I went, Nanny's had a scrap. And he goes, no, they've taken her to the smelter's yard. Nanny's been scrapped. And his understanding was Thomas the Tank Engine. So when old engines or wagons uh, reach the end of their lifespan, they go to the smelter's yard and get melted down and they're scrapped. And so when I said she's died, he was like, oh, yeah, she's been scrapped. So that, and I was like, it's, it's quite brutal, but that's pretty much what's happened. Like, I mean, it is, yeah. but I like your sparkle bit better, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. I'm, I'm more happy with little yeah, sparkle yeah, yeah. than I am with being scrapped. Yeah, but like, like because he doesn't have that emotional weight on it, he was like, oh, yeah, this is just a different way of explaining it. And so like when the cat died, it was hard because he loved the cat, and he'd, and I'd be like, well, Pod died. Um, and, he'd be, and then he understood that, we thought, and then he'd be like, well, but when is Pod coming home from the vet? And I was like, well, Pod's never coming home from the vet. And then we had him cremated, uh, the cat, and um, we, we've got him in a wee tin. And so he was quite interested in the wee tin. Like, and, and then it was about six months later, he was like, how did the cat get small enough to go in the tin? Because I'd never explained what we'd done. And I didn't want to just go, we burned him. So um, I was like, oh, you go to this special place after you die. You get really, really hot. Your body crumbles to ash. And that's what's left. And he was happy with that explanation. But then we had like a 36 degree day and he came running inside and he's like, are we going to die? Like, <laughs> like he'd just gone, oh, well, when it gets really hot, we'll just die. And not not worried about it, but just like, oh, this is what you've told me. So and I'm, what you probably should have sat him down is gone, yes, it's a thing called climate change. Yeah. And you are <laughs> yeah. probably all going to die because of it. In so your this lifetime, is a good day. darling. Yeah. This is a really good day to learn an important lesson yeah. about your future. Yeah. You, me and your dad will be fine, but probably when you're 50, you're going to be floating on a tiny iceberg. Do you think about that? I, I always think with my friends who have children, that, um, you know, you can't help but know that, yeah. you know, if the scientists are right, that the news for our planet is not good yeah. and the effects of it may be reasonably immediate. Now, look, w- w- let's let's be honest. We live in Australia and we live, you know, a, a very middle class existence, mm. both as a country and, you know, us individually. Yep. You know, we're not going to be the first people that you know, climate change comes for. We're not going to be the, you know, the people who've had to leave their, you know, countries because of, you know, the devastating effects, you know, they're going to be poor brown people first and foremost, and then eventually, but the effects will, you know, everybody in the world is going to feel those effects and children, uh, you know, of that generation are going to have to deal with the mistakes that we have made and the people before us have made. So how do you raise you know, your child, just having that knowledge, do you just block it out? Do you try to in some way funnel that into, you know, your everyday existence? Like how how does that affect it or does it not affect that at all? I guess I don't say to him, you know, the world's fucked, darling. Like I, I don't like, and we don't watch the news with him and stuff. Like we talk about things, but we don't let him see the news because there's just so much horror on it. Yeah. So, but we talk about things that are good for the environment, like 
or um, what we should recycle stuff or, you know, this is what we do because of this. Like, like I just talk to him about stuff um, or, yeah, just as it comes up. But I, but I haven't talked about stuff on a global level. But then I know he talks about stuff like that at school. I know that they talk about all sorts of different things. and But, you know, just things like um, talking about refugees and asylum seekers and things like that and and being aware that I'm the person that calibrates his moral compass you know me and his dad are the people who set him up to be kind or to be someone who's like fuck off we're full which we're not doing um but do you know what I mean like it'd be ironic wouldn't oh yeah I was the last one I was the last one Uh, all right, so that's that's death. Yep. Um, and that's that's having children. Um, the only uh, thing that I really like would love to talk to you about is: is there a moment in your life that, if you had your time again, you'd do something differently? Oh. Now, I know this is an interesting question because you know there's a, there's a school of thought that is well, everything that has happened to me so far has brought to me yeah. to where I am now, and if you take one of those pieces out, you don't know. Where you'll end up. Where where you'll end up and what things you learned from that. And maybe it was the process of, you know, dealing with that thing or recovering from that thing or feeling guilty about that thing that shaped you into the person that you became. But is there something that in your mind where you go, I wish I had my time over. I wish I just would have done that differently. I feel like maybe there's maybe a career was I should have pushed myself harder or I should have been more, um, I should have played the game a bit more because I think uh, I, I could have ended up in different places in terms of radio and things, if I'd kind of been more of a hard ass as opposed to just thinking that everybody acts in an honourable way, kind of, I think, I think I, there's probably uh, an, a part of me that's too naive for my own good. Like even now I still like figure things out a little bit too late where I go, oh, I should have, oh, I should have done that differently. But I also espouse the thing of like everything that you've done leads you to this point. So if I hadn't done this, if I hadn't had a bad relationship, I wouldn't have ended up coming to Australia. I wouldn't have my son and my husband and you know, all of those things. So, but, but one of the things that I think about is that when my grandfather was, he'd had a stroke and I was 14. It's such a weird moment to think about. He, so he was in a wheelchair and we were at his, my grandparents' house and I was in the room with him and he started crying and saying he was useless and that nobody loved him. And I didn't know what to do. And I left the room because I was overwhelmed. And I think about that and I wish that I had been able to tell him. And how strange that 34 years later, I can still feel that regret. But, oh, well, Anderson, this wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> oh, I mean, I feel like Andrew Denton all of a sudden. <laughs> like, but, but, but this, like, yeah. I cr- I cr- I've, cr- I've cried at Antiques Roadshow, so this isn't mm. out of the ordinary for me. But No, I'm a crier too. Yeah, but... but Do you encourage your uh, child yes, to cry? Yes, yes. Yeah. And the thing that it's done for me, like, I so regret... Not telling him that I loved him, mm. but I don't think I don't leave things unsaid. Oh, I hate the sound of myself crying. It's ridiculous. I've never left things unsaid. Like I think it's so important that everybody knows how you feel about them. I never want any. I never want any of the people I love to be in any doubt that how much they matter to me 
it would be great if I could turn this on when I'm doing auditions. <laughs> I mean, it's, it was, it's really compelling. <laughs> i got to be honest with you. But um, yeah, like I, I wish, I'm, I so did not expect that to happen. Um, I think, that, like, I mean, that, like, thought though, the idea, the regret of not letting somebody know yeah. what you really think. And we so often in our lives, you know, don't say to other people yeah. what we really think because we're nervous or we don't feel that those, th- or... yeah, those things won't come back in the same way yeah. or that we'll be an idiot or whatever it is. And and I think that so many people probably listening to this relate to that idea of going, I just wish that I had been yeah. able to tell that person. You know, we're having this debate about, you know, drug use in our society at the moment and, you know, like I, th- I think that one of the overlooked things when people talk about, you know, recreational drug mm-hmm. use is that often when you're in your sort of early twenties, the idea of using recreational drugs gives people the capacity to say things to yeah. people yep. that they wish they could say yep. without using recreational drugs. Yep. It's the cliche of the people, you know, off their heads on, you know, ecstasy in the yeah, corner yeah. telling each other that they love them. But I think that it, sometimes that plays in a really important role yeah. in getting people to that stage yep. where they're comfortable to sit down and actually say to their friends that they other. love them. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm also really clear about if someone has done something good to tell that person, you know, like whether you've done a good job or, you know, like for me at the moment, it's if I see a friend's book in a bookshop, I send them a photo of the book. Like, I think we should just celebrate each other. I think that's a a really beautiful uh, note to leave it on. I'm going to celebrate you by telling everybody to watch your Netflix special, which is on Comedians of the World. Uh, And so you go onto Netflix and you go, like, there's kind of a, there's a tile that'll say Comedians of the World. Bright yellow. And then they can search for your special, for Joel Creasy's special, for Naz's special. Ursula Carlson. Ursula Carlson. Like a whole bunch of really brilliant people who've done specials, uh, but, you know, a whole bunch of locals and a few people have been on this podcast. So please go and find those. Um, And your brand new show, where are you taking it to? Uh, It is going to the Melbourne Comedy Festival, Adelaide Fringe, going to Sydney, going to Perth. Okay, and uh, what is it called? It's called Gifted Underachiever. And uh, do you know what it's about? At this stage, when's the first time you do it? Uh, I do it in Adelaide at the end of February. So at this stage... So we're recording this on the 25th of January to give people uh, context. And so your first performance is, Uh, do you know the date? I don't even know the date. Well, I'm living week by week. Very different existence to what I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because it's the end of February. Like normally yeah. I'd be going, oh shit, it's next week. But so I've you've got, got about a month. Got, so yeah, about a month out from, you know, doing the show, yep. where where are you at I've, in relation to the show? I've got 40 minutes of 55 and I haven't written the tough parts yet. So I've got all the funny, funny, funny stuff, but I haven't written the stuff that I really, that, that feels dangerous to say, which is um, the way it works. For me, it's like, I'm like, oh, I, I want to have an opinion, but I'm nervous about having an opinion. I don't want to get backlash. Like, um, so the stuff that's important to me, I'm still thinking about, and then I'm putting jokes around that. Um, well, I'm not going to leave this left unsaid. I love you. I think oh. you're the best. And I'm so pleased that you came and did this. And uh, I hope the show is absolutely fantastic. And thanks for doing it today. Thanks, Will. 